details. <laughs> Look, man, I'm a DJ because I use a crossfader. It's over 9,000. If I, yeah, I would have hooked it up to my, uh, my actual mixers and everything, but we had less than an hour. And we made it happen. We made a show happen for you guys. We're going to talk about, uh, I guess, we've, we've labeled it open source farmer, but we've got uh, Dr. Michael here with us. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and what you do? Yeah, so I'm the chief spokesperson for the 4Ds Vinegar Collective, which works in human rights and global health. And the sort of overarching agenda is to try to bring access to medicines and medical technologies to people who don't have them. And the methodologies that we employ are trying to develop techniques so that people can manufacture their own medicines and medical technologies on their own and increase uh, personal and bodily autonomy. That is very awesome. Um, so I guess like how long has, uh, has the organization been, been running for? How long have you guys been at this? Well, we've been public for about four years. Um, we were underground before that. And so maybe totaling a, a dozen years and uh -huh. uh, but uh yeah we've been sort of publicly active for that long. that sounds absolutely awesome um i guess there's uh especially in uh united states where a lot of uh medications are not subsidized um by the government and and people are paying through the nose for things that they they really need uh it sounds like it's it's a pretty good cause um there are three main reasons why people get disenfranchised from access to medicines or medical technology, and they are price, legality, or lack of infrastructure. And in first world countries uh, like the US, the first two are the main culprits, and in third world countries, it's the third. Um, mm -hmm. When you empower people to manufacture their own medicines, you can bypass all of so what's, uh, I guess the, there's a lot of sanctions and, and, uh, and strict regulation around the manufacture of, of pharmaceuticals. Uh, so what kind of areas are sort of the, you know, the places that uh, are the least, you know, the, the place where you can get the most done with the, with the least sort of uh, being held back by all those regulations? Well, this is only if you have respect for those regulations. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm, I, I, I say that not in jest. It's, it's an important distinction to make that one is held back by unjust regulations only if one wishes to abide by them and not run the risk of running afoul of them and having uh, legal repercussions. But on one of the things that were very pleased about is that because we are empowering people on an individual level, it's very hard to detect that people are actually running afoul of these sorts of regulations. And so it's also very difficult to prosecute. And so people who decide to actively take their health into their own hands, they 
do run a non-zero risk, but it is sufficiently less than if someone were to say, you know, set up shop and start manufacturing drugs that they were selling or distributing for free or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. If people are making their own medicines on an individual level, that is lower risk than you might think. Yep. So like, uh, people making that their own mind for themselves um and not not you know being sketchily selling it on the street and people not knowing what's in whatever it is yeah because they right that's a very different animal yeah yeah so with uh i guess what's sort of the barrier to entry to for that kind of thing how like is there um you know like restrictions on on what's required to to be involved with like to take your to your health into your own hands or mostly it... it's the will to act so uh, in in the first world and especially in the united states there's a tremendous culture of outsourcing of responsibility of any task that is seen as specialized and increasingly everything is seen as specialized it's a it's a cultural gap in the United States, um, and I and I don't know where all of you guys are based. Uh, can you just tell me where each of you are geographically? Well, I'm in Australia, the uh, U.S. From uh, Canada, Montreal. Okay, cool. So here, I just have a round robin question for each of you guys. Um, like each of you, if you think about your your friend and family pool, people who you would know this particular fact about. How many people do you know who do something as basic as change the, their own oil in their car? Probably most people. Yeah, quite a few. All right, cool. So that's interesting. Um, in the general population, and I, I, th I think that's that's indicative of the company because in the general population, very few people actually do that. And and despite the fact that you know if if the four of us are talking about it. Right? It's a pretty simple process. You're talking about unscrewing a single bolt, uh, letting a liquid drain out of the machine, uh, screwing the bolt back in and then refilling. It's a pretty simple process, all told. Um, however, if you go through most of the U.S., oil change places just litter every city because people are scared to do it themselves, not because they're lazy or because they're, you know, decide that they'd rather outsource this because it's a dirty job or, um, but honestly out of fear saying, oh, what if I got it wrong? What if I do something wrong to my car? And, it, and the ideas that that comes from the fact that if somebody else does it, if it doesn't work, it's not your fault that it's um, and this attitude is widely held, especially in the U.S., in regards to health. People don't take care of their health, and then they wait for something to go so chronically wrong that they can no longer function, and then they go to the doctor and say, fix it. And, and it's not a process of involvement. So... Even on the most basic level, the shift is mostly one of saying, look, yeah, a doctor may have gone to school to be a doctor, but I don't need to be a doctor. I need to learn about my body, not 
everybody, just mine. And, and this is especially important for people who suffer from rare diseases, orphan diseases, or have something that's, you know, gone long undiagnosed that, you know, they suffer from something and the various doctors and specialists they've gone to have thrown up their hands. If you have health, which we all do, you can become an expert on the health of your particular body without spending 12 years doing it. What doctors go to school to do is learn how to administer to a lot of different people with a lot of different things and a lot of different situations. You can become an expert on your own health fairly quickly. And if you have an ailment, you can very quickly become better informed than your general practitioner on your particular sickness. And that's, that's step zero. You want to talk about the barrier to entry. It's the will to act and being willing to say, yeah, I'm going to learn and I'm going to get involved. That's, that's step zero. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, certainly if, if somebody's diagnosed with, uh, let's just say diabetes or, or whatever, I guess the, one of the first things they should do is learn everything they can about looking after themselves um, because that's something they're going to have to do every single day. Yeah, and they will learn about like the food, the properties. They're gonna know how oh, I can eat that. That's gonna affect me. The same can apply to other illness or sickness that that they have. And honestly, we should all do that before we get sick. We should be thinking about what we're eating. We should be thinking about how we're exercising. We should be thinking about how well we're hydrating. We should be thinking about how well we're resting. We should be thinking about our air quality. All of these things are really basic, but so often our idea of healthcare is really sick care. We wait until we're ill to address anything. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. So, I mean, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Dan. No, no, I was just, uh, I, I don't want to hijack the conversation towards, uh, towards depression and stuff like that, but there's a there's a decent amount of it running around in uh kind of the circles that we run in and in tech and hacking stuff in general and uh when you're in that state of mind it's hard to prioritize eating right and getting exercise and doing stuff like that at all like that's the absolutely you know what i mean it's the furthest thought from yeah yeah mind. let's say Do that you... a lot of us have sleep deprivation yeah yeah, I'm going on two days, no sleep. Is there? Yeah, so it's there are these there are these dangers, and and that is a thing. Addressing mental health is a very tricky thing, and and depression, as you point out, is um, is debilitating, and as are all illnesses. And of course, that is a problem. That having the wherewithal to start addressing things while you are ill is a very difficult cycle out of which to break. Yeah. Um, and so to kind of, to kind of tell in the, the question, what do you have any, any tips that you can think of that you could, you could maybe give some of the listeners that, uh, you found have, have been successful with people and patients. So for depression specifically, I actually have, uh, a trick that is potentially quite effective that hasn't been published yet um, because it's part of a 
research that uh, I'm currently involved in with some medical professionals. But uh, regarding depression, there's this interesting phenomenon, which is that the hippocampus starts to atrophy. Uh, it's a particular part of the brain. It's, if you like to look into its structure and function, there are really easy ways to research that. But roughly speaking, there's a part of your brain that starts to actually shrink when you're depressed. Now, there's an interesting fact, which is that the other situation under which that part of the brain atrophies is when people exclusively use turn-by-turn uh, -turn directions. Oh, interesting. That part of the brain also deals with navigation and sort of placements uh, spatially and geographically. So there is a potential process to reverse that atrophy outwardly. And so if you take a map, an actual map, and then decide to use that map to navigate to a place that you haven't been before, and, and it, it doesn't have to be out in the wilderness. It can be in the very city in which you live. You just pick a location that you haven't gone to. And you look at the map and you don't use GPS and you use the map to orient yourself and you look around and then you make your way and you use that as a practice that can reverse that hippocampal atrophy and the reversal of hippocampal atrophy will also combat depression. Hmm. It is a really weird connection, but I was lucky enough to stumble across this with some other medical researchers and we've been we've been writing it up for the past uh, I don't know it's been almost two years now, but this is a, this is a potential potentially very cheap, <laughs> easy therapy for uh, people who are depressed. So um, that's pretty go uh, good stuff. Yeah, I never heard of that before at all, and I yeah, think that's, uh, some, that's some real dope research. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Yeah. It's cool because at the same time, it makes sense. I don't use cell phone signs maybe two years and I've been like reading card and everything and I'm more happy since I don't use cell phone. That that might sound stupid, but at, at the same time, I, I'm just linking both right now because I wasn't aware of this duty. Yeah, it's it's it was a it was a wonderful thing to uncover, and you know, there remains a lot of research to be done about uh, why it works or or you know its its efficacy rate. But it suggests certain things about navigation, our place in the world, what we think about place in the world in terms of specific location and purpose, and a lot of other subtler things that I think. Uh, hopefully will be picked up by researchers who are more expert on this sort of thing than I am. It's pretty interesting. It, it seems like uh, the organization has quite um, a wide range of, uh, of areas. What are the, the largest areas you think that, uh, that can make a difference? Like, is it, is it the basic medicines or is it, the, is it more therapeutical stuff? Like where, so, yeah, so our flagship project is the Apothecary Microlab. It's an open source automated chemical reactor that allows people to manufacture the active pharmaceutical ingredients 
in medications. And so if there's something that's entirely inaccessible, you can make it without having a background in science or chemistry, the software will walk you through the process and it'll automate all of the things that are easy to screw up, long, boring, um, and, and at the end you can get your active pharmaceutical ingredient and administer it yourself by packing it into pills or pressing it with tablets or whatever your route of administration is. That's our main thing. I mean, we've had a lot of other projects um, come up along the way because they fit with our goals. However, that's the, that's the one that we're working to get to a nice solid beta stage so that we can have it in the open source community and people can pick it up and people will hopefully figure out ways to do things with it that we haven't thought of. People will figure out ways to improve it that well, we hadn't considered and it'll just be a tool for everybody and we can, um, we can dissolve as an organization or at least move on to other things. Yeah. Now looking at your website, I didn't like you guys, uh, or like behind the EpiPencil? Yes, that was us. You want to tell us a bit more about that? Because I think I feel like that's a really, really cool thing that a lot of people might have heard about before. Yeah, so we, we came above ground in 2016 in the summertime. Um, and we took advantage of the fact that Martin Shkreli was in the news and we manufactured Daraprim on stage and I, uh, I cracked his cell phone and called him from the stage and, um, you know, I threw pills to the audience and we had a good time. That was at Hackers on Planet Earth and, and that was fun. And we got back to work on the Apothecary Microlab and because people had sort of heard about us, we were getting a lot of um, notifications or, or letters, I should say. We were getting letters through the website. Um, people were contacting us saying, hey, why aren't you doing something about the EpiPen? And we were saying, well, you know, we're talking about pharmaceutical manufacture, not devices. This is kind of not what we do. And people would write back and be like, well, you should. And, and this happened over and over and over. And finally I got on our, um, on Semaphore, which is our secure communications channel. It's like Slack, but encrypted. And we were like, well, should we do this? And everybody said, yeah, we should do this. And so we sort of looked into it like, okay, um, EpiPens are important. If people don't get them in a very short amount of time, they die. And a lot of people can't afford them. What's the, what's going wrong here? So we started looking at manufacturing adrenaline. And the thing is, is like, that's not really the thing. Adrenaline's easy to get. And we're like, well, what's, what's the gap here? And it's, well, this is just a delivery mechanism. Oh, this is silly. Yeah, we could build this. How hard could it be? Um, so we started looking for off-the-shelf auto-injectors. And the interesting thing is that there aren't very many out there. There's the EpiPen. There's a glucagon pen that's uh, designed for diabetics. And th that doesn't use a syringe. It uses sort of a, a baggie and a needle. And then the only other preloaded auto-injectors out there that we found were for um, anti-chemical and biological warfare agents. Um, and those are exclusively manufactured for the American and Israeli governments. So we weren't going to get our hands on those. And so we were kind of dead in the water for a little bit until um, one of the people in the collective found this 
reloadable auto injector that's designed for needle phobic diabetics. It's just people who don't like shooting themselves up. So you load the syringe into this spring-loaded mechanism, you screw it shut, you set it, uh, you press it into wherever, and then you press the button and it does it all for you. And so we took some time because we had to find large gauge needles that would mate with small syringes, but eventually we found a combination that worked. And then we realized that, yeah, for $30 to set up, you could have your own um, EpiPen equivalent that we call the EpiPencil. And you could reload it for $3, which is great. And on top of that, you can test it because shortly after we released it, and I should say shortly after the FDA said, don't make your own EpiPen equivalent, <laughs> Myland Pharmaceuticals recalled something like 80,000 EpiPens because they were failing. And there are these just absolutely heartbreaking stories of people dying because their EpiPens didn't work. And the problem is with a single use tool, you can't test it. You hold it in faith that it will work and you use it and it will either work or it won't. And there's just this terrible story about a father with a, a child with some allergy who was on a transatlantic flight. The food wasn't labeled properly. She went into anaphylaxis. He had two EpiPens with him. The first one failed, and then the second one failed, and then he sat there watching her die. It was just so unbelievably tragic. And with something that's reloadable and open source that you built yourself, you can test as much as you want and make sure that it works because it's it's reusable. So we're very proud of that work and um, and we hope that some people out there have managed to get some uh, use out of it and managed to get some relief from the uh, economic hostage taking that is taking place in the American medical system. That's some real cool stuff. So like, uh, so you have those, those two projects you're talking about. Is there anything else like, uh, like in the works? Oh yeah. Well, we have a, we have a, a handful of things, uh, going on. We're, we're working on, um, a sort of anarchist cookbook for medicine. We're calling the anarchist medical book, sort of a guide on how to seize control of your own health in, in any realm because there are a lot of moving parts to health it's it's a complicated process and if you want to dive in as you suggested earlier it can be a bit daunting to say like how where do i start so we're hoping to develop some literature so that people who wish to start that process can get a little more involved a little more easily um it's something that we've been working on for a while is reviving some technology that was actually developed 20 years ago and then faded away because of really, really silly bureaucratic reasons. But there was a guy who genetically engineered a bacteria with which you can, you can populate your mouth with it and it will keep you cavity-free for the rest of your life. So you could literally take this bacteria, brush your teeth with it once, and never get another dental cavity for the rest of your life. And given that 
cavities both lead to vascular disease and heart disease and a number of other things, and that it predominantly affects people who are disenfranchised from access to health, people who are poor, people who are uh, marginalized in other ways, uh, class-based or, or otherwise, um, are disproportionately affected by dental problems. Uh, it could be a, a huge win to be able to essentially uh, post-vaccinate people uh, against cavities. Just to uh, be clear on that, though, you're saying there's uh, room for research in this kind of a thing, right? So uh, I'm not quite sure what you mean. I, I can give you a little uh, more technical on how it works, though. Just trying to clarify is that you're not saying that this is a definite thing that people should research and and put some kind of bacteria in their mouths and they'll they'll never get a cavity again. Like that's that's something that I'm sure needs quite a bit of scientific research to prove and you know. I, I think you mean like is it ready for the public to start doing research about it or there's still unknown like after effect so the research has been done. Uh, let me back up a little bit and give you guys some technical detail, and I think it'll all come clear. Um, dental cavities are an infectious disease. We don't think of them as an infectious disease, but they are. The reason that you get a cavity is that there is a bacterium that lives in your mouth called, that's a strain of strep, it's called strep mutans. It has mutated over the years, over the millennia, to have the ability to grip the surface of the human tooth. Most bacteria can't do that. And what it does is it eats sugar and it excretes lactic acid. Lactic acid is an acid. It breaks down tooth enamel. And once it perforates the surface of the tooth, then other bacteria can set up shop and everything sort of goes downhill from there. What was done in 1998 was that there was a dentist named Dr. Jeffrey Hillman who took this particular strain of stuff and he did two particular edits on the gene, one of which made it a super colonizer. So if you put this in an ecosystem with another, with the original strain of Stratton-Tans, it will outcompete it and take its place in the ecosystem. And the second thing he did was he altered its metabolism genetically so that instead of excreting lactic acid, it excretes alcohol dihydrogenase, which is inert for the surface of the tube. So when you put this into the mouth of uh, a human subject or even a rat subject, they tested rats first before they did humans, it just changes the microbiome of the mouth and cavities are no longer a problem. It's a really brilliant solution, and for the tests that were done, it was uh, successful. He ultimately ran out of money because he wasn't a multinational pharmaceutical corporation and wasn't able to push things through the FDA, and so he never ultimately got approval. And, you know, when he turned 70 or something, he retired and sort of just gave up on it. But it's... Uh, 
it's something to which we should all have access. Yeah, that's some, that is some amazing research. Yeah, so. So did you have more questions on that? Huh? Uh, no, I mean, like, I, I, I hear what you're saying on it, um, but the, you know, this, the person that made the discovery, um, is obviously within, uh, I, I, I guess I just kind of disagree with the, uh, notion that it's for life when, um, the guy is still alive, so he couldn't have possibly done tests for people's full entire lives, right? But I think if the uh, <laughs> if the <laughs> you know you know what I'm trying to get at, but if the data set, um, if yeah, the data that's, sets, that's a that's a, a faulty logic there. I mean, oh. sure, yeah, there there isn't data for people's entire lives, sure, but there's no mechanism for anything to be reversed. I mean. Uh, he did this with people and a dozen years running, nothing's reversed. So there's nothing to suggest that the upsetting of the mouth microbiome would revert. I mean, I suppose if you went in with some like broad spectrum antibiotics and wiped out everything in your system that you could potentially repopulate it with the regular strep mutans that would start eating holes in your teeth again. But in terms of how microbiomes in the human mouth work, it's a stable solution. And he has a number of data points on that. And I mean, of course, sure, who knows? And biology is complicated. So nothing's ever guaranteed for sure. All manner of weird shit could happen. But in terms of what we understand of biology, it would be a permanent solution. Yeah, it's it's just, yeah, because it's different than a normal, like, uh, it's different than how you view medicine normally, right? Uh, right, it's, it's a biologic solution, it's not pharmacological. I mean, and, and again, to <clears throat> if you think about the sorts of things that you're given to do for oral hygiene, they're all based around the same thing. The reason you're brushing your teeth is you're trying to break up the biofilm that builds up on your teeth that's made up of strep mutans so that it's not eating into your teeth. When people say it's good to have fluoridated water or use fluoride mouthwash because fluorine is toxic to strep mutans and kills it, uh, everything circles around this idea of trying to mitigate that particular bacterium. Um, and so to merely take that bacterium and de-weaponize it, as it were, against the tooth, is uh, a solution of permanence. Oh, that is interesting. So like, what, were, what would be happen if like uh, you use like the same sort of like toothpaste that kills the one strain against uh say like the other like um with your new mutated strain well unless you wipe it out again unless you wiped out your microbiome entirely um it would come back uh, so 
I, I suppose it's possible if you were, you know, if you use something extraordinarily strong or if you were brushing your teeth with some, I don't know, doxycycline or something, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, or some, something that was, you know, extremely strong. I, I suppose it's possible that you could reset your, your microbiome and, and fall back into that. But again, if you did that, you could just re-administer it and you'd, you'd be back into the category of stability okay. and see. is uh, a lot of interesting research. I, I really appreciate research done on bacteria because there is so much you could do with, uh, you know, how, you know, bacteria that, cause they're, you know, they're searching in uh, bacteria that breaks down and like fungus that breaks down plastics and all this other crazy shit. But I feel like yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of really neat room for research there. And that's definitely one of the, the more interesting ones. Yeah, they're they're doing a number of good lines of research on on human microbiome bacteria. Um, E.g., they found a disproportionately high number of a particular strain of bacteria in the gut of many high performance athletes, which is really interesting. So to sort of see the interplay between microorganisms in your system and the way the human biology works. There have been a number of things also linked to uh, gut health in the microbiome and obesity and gut health in the microbiome and uh, mental health. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to look at. And of course, when people talk about things like, oh, well, wouldn't this be a nice panacea? I can just put this in works that gut health is a little more complicated because you're feeding it all the time. So the, the idea that you can put a new bacteria in your gut and stop being obese is only half true. You need to put that bacteria in large amounts in your gut and then start eating the sort of food that will cause it to survive. There's sort of a, a two-way street there, right? Part of the reason that that micro microbiome gets unbalanced is if you're eating a bunch of toxic junk food that's protein poor and full of additives those those bacteria that are helpful start to die out um so it's 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 a non-linear model it's complicated there are a lot of moving parts but it's really fascinating to see what the researchers are doing we're learning a lot more about how our biology works in a grander moral holistic sense yeah for sure it's uh something that i've have a really strong interest in uh, so it's really neat to hear like the com comorbidity of um you know like mental disorders and um you know gut you know gut problems so yeah it's 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 huge and and i feel like soon we're going to get a lot more data and we're going to be able to do more with manipulating those sort of things. I mean, already people with digestive issues have been doing pretty well by repopulating their gut and then changing their diet. A lot of people who have gut issues get discouraged because changing their diet doesn't do it by itself uh, because they're fighting this uphill battle with their microbiome. So if you can sort of reset and change your diet, you get this, you get to sort of start fresh. Um, you get a new new lease on gut health, which is which is wonderful.
Yeah. Are there any other uh, like specific areas besides you know like, back, like bacteria and whatnot that you're like uh, super hopeful in as far as like like advancements in medicine and whatnot? Oh yeah, I mean there are a lot, and and I'm always trying to stay abreast of new things that are coming up because you know things the, the pipeline that it takes from the inception of something to somebody actually having commercial access to it is it's years and years and it's very disappointing for somebody who says oh there's research in the, the field of my particular ailment or uh, a therapeutic that i'd like to have access to and it's like well you know wait a few years and maybe you'll be able to buy it versus like well maybe you could make it yourself um but there are a lot of things out there that are very exciting there's a there's a new implant that contains pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is extraordinarily exciting to me. Um, currently, currently the biggest problem with the HIV epidemic is that people who are infected have to stick to a very strict regimen of daily antiretrovirals to keep their load below detectable for people who are not infected with the virus, who have, who are taking pre-exposure prophylaxis or they're exposed to the virus, they don't contract it, also have to stick to a very regimented uh, structure of medications to make sure that that therapy remains effective. Now, the biggest problem is that if you miss a dose because you have a you know stomach flu or you take it at the wrong time or you take it without food instead of with food then you you end up uh, out of sync and your viral load spikes or your resistance spikes and if you could take that out of the equation then everything could be better. Now, if you remember uh, as early as the late 90s, there was an implant that was for birth control called Norplant. And you got a small implant in your upper arm and it lasted for five years. They um, since developed something called Norplant 2, which is uh, similarly structured that lasts for even longer. And they're utilizing the same technology to use pre-exposure prophylaxis. So you could get an implant in your subcutaneous layer that would last for a decade and you wouldn't have to worry about exposure to HIV. This is huge. And this delivery mechanism, which is a polymer, copolymer matrix, uh, in a silicone tube that just sits under your fat layer could deliver all sorts of things and keep people safe from a lot of diseases and keep people also in therapy for diseases they've already contracted. So I'm really hopeful for that. And there are a lot of different applications for that. Which is very exciting. Of course, there's prep as well, which is amazing. Amazing success rates with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how can people get involved in like with your organization? Yeah. So, uh, at fourthesevinegar.org, or if you're paranoid, we're also on, uh, the onion network. 
um, there's a contact page. Just send us an email. And please rest assured that we will read them eventually. We sometimes get swamped with a lot of them, but we're always looking for people who'd like to get involved, regardless of skill set. We have a lot of different teams. We have hardware, software, publicity, online, strategy, uh, logistics, uh, law, uh, research, medicine, chemistry, all, all of these things. So regardless of your skill set, even if you feel like you have no skill set, you're just enthused. If you feel like you have no skill set, everybody has a skill set. Just say hi and, and we can start the conversation potentially and you could um, come start making the world a little healthier. I think that's a, uh, that's a noble way to... Uh to kind of start wrapping things up and, and, and a noble thing to end on. I mean, uh, making the world a healthier place, getting people in a better place, both physically and mentally is something I think we can all agree, uh, needs to be done. Right. Of all the causes, of all the causes that are out there, of all the things that need to be addressed, Personal health has to come first because if you are unwell, you can't do anything else. So you have to look after your health first. Yeah, and it absolutely. has the, uh, the side effect of uh, taking money out of the pockets of big pharma, which uh, I think we can all agree is is good. <laughs> what's, uh, I won't uh, complain. What's what's your um, the I guess big pharma? <laughs> what's what's one of the medications you? Uh, that really just gets to you. You really just don't like it. A medication I don't like, or a medication I don't like the way it's being handled. Uh, yeah, you can answer like however you, you feel. And handle is probably the the best. Yeah, question. yeah. Well, so so Valdi I is the one that that always makes my skin crawl because this is one of the most incredible pharmaceutical technologies to ever be developed. It actually will wipe out hepatitis C, which is a virus. Usually you can't expunge a virus from the body, but this does it. And it's a complicated mechanism, but it drains the viral reservoir. And it's, it's really incredible. So people who are suffering from hepatitis C don't have to just manage it. They can actually expunge the virus from their body entirely. It's incredible. You take one pill a day for 12 weeks and continue with antivirals and it's gone. The problem is these pills are a thousand dollars a piece, and so if you have eighty-two thousand dollars burning a hole in your pocket, then sure, hepatitis C is not your problem anymore. But if you don't, then you still have to manage hepatitis C, and hepatitis C is a huge problem, yeah. a huge, huge problem. It's much more virulent than HIV, and it's spreading faster and faster in the U.S. Oh yeah, totally. and. And there's absolutely zero reason, except for the way that intellectual property law continues to function, that people shouldn't have access to it. We could wipe out hepatitis C in humans, more or less, the way that, you know, polio or smallpox kind of went out of style. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not being done because making people healthy and wiping out a disease is not profitable. What's profitable is keeping people sick and keeping them coming back for more. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
actually Definitely. just it, have a story of a, a guy I know who uh, had an interferon allergy. And so there was no, like, that was, in, it was like right as this was becoming, you know, an actual thing. And they literally people, said, well. Just so people are all aware, uh, interferon's uh, medication that helps rebuild the liver uh, and liver related uh, viruses, right? Yeah, more or less. It's uh, it's like what they like normally they do for uh, Hep C patients. Oh, okay. They used to do, uh, as as I understand it. But until like this came out, he, they said, "Well, your diagnosis is that you're going to die. Uh, you're going to die uh, because there's nothing else that we have for you, really." Uh, it's and- so irritating to hear about that sort of thing. Where when when medical community just shrugs and says well sometimes people are just unlucky that's just horrific that should never happen yeah so it's it is like i said it it's personal uh with me when i hear you talk about stuff like that yeah yeah. uh increasing the ability for people to get uh these medications that otherwise they would not uh you know they just die without yeah it's personal Uh, for all of us because they're before the grace we all are susceptible to any number of diseases and it's only a matter of luck and or time that we haven't fallen under that bus ourselves. Each one of us is just as fragile as the next person. And those of us who are healthy are just lucky. And that's all. That's very true. So uh, just while we've been talking about this, uh, I just wanted to point out as well, I guess we should probably say that, um, just reiterate that uh, if you do choose to partake in any of this, you may be breaking a law where you are. So we don't condone breaking laws, but check. Uh, I do, it's, but you know, that's just me. <laughs> yeah, Thugger <laughs> does not condone breaking laws. Um, this is all information. It's very interesting. Um, if you are interested, look it up. But that is, we are, we're not telling you to do any of this. Um, we're just telling you about it. So we're all carrying that said, that said, it, the fourth East Vinegar Collective thinks that people should not be the most upstanding citizens in the graveyard and that it's better to break the law and live than it is to continue to abide by it and die. Amen. <laughs> well said. Any, uh, any gentlemen, it's been really words? great. Speak. And um, thanks so much for having me on and uh, keep up the good work. And maybe we'll talk again sometime in the future when we've broken out some more stuff. Sounds great. Yeah, definitely. That. Good luck with all the endeavors, and I hope a lot of people uh, get well. Yeah. Thanks so much, yeah. gentlemen. So do I. We'll be in touch. Definitely. All right. Take it easy. Thank you. Have take a good care. one. All right. That about uh, wraps it up for us. We. Uh, I don't know. I. I don't have many last words except for shut the fuck up and get a lawyer. Any uh, yeah. any yeah. last words, Shelley? Uh Thanks for sticking sticking with us through uh, <laughs> through all the shit today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Next week we'll uh, I guess we'll check our uh, our stream a little bit earlier, get things back to normal, and um, yeah. If you yeah. Uh, hell yeah. yeah, all right. Stick around and we'll see you guys next week. Gonna play you out with Shia Facts. Peace. Peace. Later.
Jag. You can't patch along the Shire Fags. And when we come with murderation, all original gangsta man. Here when we tell them now, you hear me coming to imitate, originate, become originate. All right, mate. Now what you doing, mate? Here when we tell them coming to the gears, I'm gonna stop that. Watch me tell you, boy. Watch this. Big in a jungle When we tell every boy Watch it now man Me at the nutta Original man My man My man Nutta Original man Murderer, I kill up any digit by the corner. 